Right, we figured that out, right? This is our ninth message, our ninth installment in the messages uh, series entitled From Egypt to the Promised Land. And uh, in reality, <coughs> if, uh, if I would have it my way, we could have done the last message in this one all wrapped up in one, but uh, since you guys aren't into those hour and a half messages like we were in Latin America, uh, what we'll do is uh, we sort of split it. And we're talking about the legitimate desert experience. So we're on a second part of uh, the legitimate desert experience. Now we've been, um, we've been seeking to determine our own spiritual geography in our spiritual pilgrimage as we walk with God through this earth. And um, we've been approaching this from the typology found in uh, the Exodus, the experience of the Hebrews coming out of Egypt. Last week, one of the things that we wanted to remember was that God sees humanity and considers humanity in three bulks, the natural man, the carnal man, the spiritual man. We said the carnal man lives in Egypt on a cruise in Egypt, by the way, uh, and, and he's Egyptian. And, and, and let, me, let me say this. I know sometimes as Christians, we tend to criticize society um, for what it does and for what it doesn't do. And, and, and let me just remind you, don't expect an Egyptian to act like a carnal or a spiritual man. An Egyptian is an Egyptian. He will do Egyptian things. And that ought not to surprise us. And may I remind you, there is no one in this room who at one point or another was not himself, herself, an Egyptian. We were all in the world, and we acted what we only knew, which was the world. So the natural man is an Egyptian. The carnal man, well, he has come to know God, and he is in the process of maturing, and there's nothing wrong with carnality in a young believer. As we said, there's nothing wrong with babies. There's nothing wrong with adolescents. There's something dreadfully wrong when a baby has a mustache. Something is wrong. We've, we've, we've missed something somewhere. And then there is the spiritual man. He lives in Canaan. He's walked through the desert. He's learned his lessons. And he has um, taken possession of all of the riches that are in Christ Jesus, he has, he has um, stepped through uh, the Jordan River. Now, we got two truths that we mentioned last week. Life in the desert is better than in Egypt. No matter how bad the desert is, it's still better than Egypt. But the other truth is, life in the desert is infinitely inferior to life in the promised land. So the desert isn't for us to camp out forever. Which led us to the conclusion there is a legitimate experience in the desert, but there is also an illegitimate experience in the desert. Now, we've been concentrating on the legitimate side of it, and uh, we learn that the desert is better than Egypt in that in the desert, this legitimate experience, God teaches gives us principles for godly living. 
This is where we begin to learn, to drink of the milk of the word, where we, we begin to experience God and get to know God. So the desert is good. And in the desert, the first two things we learn was God gives us a new song. You've come out of Egypt. You've realized you've been saved. You've realized you've been brought out of the world. And you cross that Red Sea. You've been baptized. You identify publicly with Jesus Christ. And you have a new song. There is joy in your heart. A new song unto our God, even praise. And many shall see it and hear and shall trust in the Lord. That is what should be happening. Sometimes I think it refers to what John in, uh, in the epistles calls the first love. That, you know, you just fall in love with your Lord because you didn't know him before. And you look back and you realize what he did by bringing you out. And we said that uh, in the desert, we learn that though life is bitter, and we're not going to try to paint roses where there aren't any, the tree, the cross, added to the bitterness of life, makes the bitter water sweet. We learned that at um, Marah. Now, new material. So let's pray and ask God to just guide us and help our minds and hearts to to connect. Lord, how sweet your word is, Lord. It, it really does reveal to us your plans and purposes. It shows us where you've brought us from and where you're taking us, even when sometimes we don't even realize we're being carried by you. Speak to us this morning. Make your word clear. May your spirit Make it clear in our minds and certainly in our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the essentials for godly living, which include a new song and uh, the sweetness of uh, the bitterness of life, to that we include manna. Manna. The bread from heaven was read to us out of chapter 16, how that um, they were to receive this bread from heaven. Uh, in it, they learned some things. Uh, they, they, of course, uh, you know, when you see this, this flakes, uh, they simply just said, well, what is it? What is it? Well, that's what the word manna means. But uh, I want to take you to the Gospel of John, just so that we understand what is happening to the Hebrews not only not a coincidence, of course, not only that God is doing some miraculous, miraculous things in their midst, but God has a futuristic plan, a plan that is way, 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 way ahead of what actually is taking place in their present desert experience. John chapter 6, I want to read to you the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. John 6.31. John 6.31, you can listen or you can follow along in your Bible. This is the Lord Jesus, and here's what's going on. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, you know what it's talking about? Because we're, we're right there. We just read, it's manna. They're talking about manna. They're remembering. Jesus, therefore, said to them, and here's where he begins to interpret. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. It is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. 
For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said, therefore, to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Who comes to me shall no longer hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. There we have the interpretation from God as to what this manna was. Bread from heaven, yes. Provision to God from God to the Israelites, yes. It was a physical ailment, yes, but it was the nourishment. Jesus clarifies, I am the bread from heaven. I am the manna that should satisfy you. May I remind you that in John, in that first chapter, in the first verse, Jesus is known as the word of God, the logos, the communicative ultimate of God to us. In Jesus Christ, we have all that we need to know about God the Father, and it's communicated to us through the living word of the scriptures, our daily substance for living. May I just make it clear so no one knows where we're not going. This is your manna. This is God's daily provision for your continual growth. It is our manna, God's bread for the sustaining of life, because man shall not live by tea and biscuits alone. We are meant to nourish ourselves through the written word of God. And I was not much of a reader as a school kid. Um, to, to, to say that I never read a book in secondary or what we call high school. Now, you can't, get a, you can't graduate from high school without reading a book. I mean, we had all kinds of classes on English, literature. You had to do book reports. But I did do them. Well, not really. I usually had some good-looking girl do it for me, you know. And uh, I'd always make sure I had just the right kind of friends in the English and literature departments that would uh, write all the book reports for me. Never wrote a book report in my life. Gets my surprise when I got to university what I had to learn to do. Well, not really. Mary helped me out with a lot of those too. But anyway, you know, I never read a book from cover to cover except one. I read one book when I was about 15 years old from cover to cover. It was a book on martial arts. And I, if I didn't read it, I wouldn't be allowed to continue on in my carter. So uh, I did that. Imagine the things that would motivate us to read a book. Never read a book. When I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, the day I came to know Christ, one of the men that was in that room had a Bible very similar to this, red cover, thin like this. He turned it upside down. You know, we keep all kinds of rubbish in our Bibles, right? All notes and pieces of paper. He took out all his little pieces of paper from the Bible and said, here, you can have my Bible. Took it home, read a little bit that night, got up in the morning, read a little bit that morning, and read a little bit ever since, for the last 32 years, every day. My first year as a believer, I had read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and I hadn't even been a Christian a whole year. You couldn't stop me from reading the Bible. It was awesome. Folks, 
Let me tell you now, having said that, I'm going to admit a fact. The Bible is a very boring book. Why are you laughing? Tell me it wasn't boring. Oh, it was so boring, you know. I went to Catholic school, you know, and so, like, the nuns would make me read it. I have no idea what I read. I don't remember anything of what I read. I just did what they told me. We just, you know, it was boring. Nobody ever read the Bible. But then I came to know Jesus. Then I had the spiritual receiver to interpret the word. All of a sudden, the book came alive. Look, that should tell you something. If it's a boring book to you, well, maybe you're still in Egypt. Maybe you've misunderstood what Christianity is about. Manna. We cannot explain it. We don't really know how it works. But we know that God's word strengthens us, nourishes us, gives us energy so that we can move forward through the pilgrimage of life. I've gone to it in the best of times. I've gone to it in the worst of times. I've gone to it when there was trouble in my life, when there was peace in my life. Because it helped me understand what God was working out in my life. There are three rules for gathering manna. If you look at uh, chapter 16, verse 21, uh, this is what you would have read in chapter verse, uh, verse 21 of chapter 16. And they gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat, but when the sun grew hot, it would, it would melt. God actually gave them rules as to how to gather manna. Now, there's rules as to how we should feed ourselves upon the word of God. Number one of the three rules were it had to be done individually, had to be done daily, and you had to gather it in the morning before the heat of the sun. Individually. That doesn't mean that because your wife reads her Bible next to you in bed, somehow you absorb its abilities into you by osmosis. It's not because your husband reads it in the living room that at least the man of the house is reading the Bible in his house. Individually, you have to gather the manna yourself. No one can gather it for you. You have to take the time. It has to be daily. It's meant to be daily. Uh, we were talking, I think, I don't know if it was the house group, but the whole idea of food, you know. I mean, there's places where I've been where if we ate once a day, we were good. But the point is, is they always seem to make sure we ate really well. And I knew that they were feeding us, but in feeding us, somebody was not getting food. But, you know, they always take care of the visitors and so on. But not in our culture, you know. We're, not, we're used to eating three times a day. And that's if you're, you know, re really, we probably eat about five or six times a day. You got your breakfast, your morning tea, then you got your lunch, then you got your afternoon snack. You got your supper or your tea time. Then you got your right before you go to bed. You know, we're just used to eating. What would happen if somebody would shut that source of nourishment? <sighs> I mean, we miss a meal and we think the world's coming to an end. I mean, I'm not going to point, but there's some of you that you're like an hour late into your meal and you get a headache. You start getting dizzy. I got I to gotta eat. We're conditioned. You don't have to eat. 
You know what? That's not true. You are conditioned. Uh, I used to work with a gentleman. Um, I'm not going to say his name because he's liable to listen to this. And, uh, and he had to eat every day at the same time. And he started getting a headache. You know? So I, I kind of made it my business one day to get him so busy and get him so occupied with what we were doing that he not realized the time that lunch had kind of come, gone, and that there was no headache. And uh, we, he had to eat between 12 and 12.30. I mean, he had to eat. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We were really busy that day working. 3 o'clock in the afternoon. No, nothing was said. Nothing was done. So I said, oh, wow, we haven't had lunch. Oh, man, I have a headache. <laughs> immediately, immediately his headache appeared. We're conditioned. Why do we not see the need to nourish ourselves in the word of God? Can I remind you, you're feeding an external body, a tent, that no matter how well and how much you invest in it, because it is somewhat of an investment, it's still going to stay. It's going to die. You are not making it live forever. Yet this manna provides us nourishment for eternity. But do we believe it? In the desert, we learn the need for manna. We learn the need for water. The next story that we read, it's uh, got to do with a rock. And uh, the fact that, of course, they're in the desert, three days into the desert, they need some water. Chapter 17, verse 5 and 7, this is what we find there. It says, uh, the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand your staff, which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you, therefore, uh, on the rock at uh, Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, right, that uh, the people may drink. Look at the next phrase. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. So, in chapter 17, we learn that they needed water. And uh, so God uh, tells Moses, uh, find uh, X rock, go to the rock, strike the rock, water comes out, and we'll feed a dozen people. How many people were there? What was the smallest number we concluded? million and a half. Either that was a big rock or a lot of water. Okay? Now, here's the thing. Rabbinical tradition says it didn't happen once. Rabbinical tradition says that as they went through the desert for those 40 years, the rock followed them and provided water. As a matter of fact, there's yet another occasion with the, with, with the rock, Moses and the rock, that will come up in the book of Numbers. And, and Moses sort of failed the test. And, and it really got him in trouble. Uh, it's another story. But let me read to you. Remember, the typology is coming out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We don't want to forget that. So in that typology of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, go to 1 Corinthians 10, and let me read to you one little verse in which Paul makes reference to the rock of Horeb. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4. Now in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, this is what it says. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock. There's the rock. Spiritual drink. Spiritual rock. 
which followed them. To Mo- so, so Paul seems to believe, and under the inspiration of the Spirit, that that's really what happened. Now look at the next phrase. And the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. The word that he uses there for rock is Petras, the boulder, the almighty rock. And that rock was Christ. The pre-incarnate Jesus was there with them, even in the desert. Now, here's the point about that water. Now, it's got nothing to do with the water. In reality, God does it because of them. And it says in verse 7 of... um, uh, of um, Exodus 17. Let me just read to you. Because it, it caught me by surprise too. I don't know why I never realized it. And he named the place Massa, which means uh, tested. And Meribah, which uh, means to quarrel. They tested God. They quarreled there about water uh, of the sons of Israel. And because they tested the Lord, saying, now look at what they said. Is the Lord among us or not? Is he or is he not with us? That is a fair question for a desert dweller, for an adolescent believer. And God goes out of his way to prove to them, yes, I am here. I got a glimpse into this as a new believer. Uh, I was in a one of at, at uh, in university. I was in seminary, and it was one of these classes of theology that, especially as, as in my first year of university, it was like, well, talk about a peak over the top for me, you know? It was just too much. But the point was that. The professor was going on on this thing, you know, and this is how God works, and this, you know. I sheepishly raised my hand, and I said, no, actually, how I got here and how God worked in my life, it was totally different, and he did this, and everything opposite of what he'd been saying, God doesn't do. And um, to which he answered, well, well, yeah, I could see how God would do that with you, because you're a new believer, and he needs to treat you differently and help you along. And I thought, well, is that good or bad? Truth is, he was right. God does, in a very real way, tenderly, carefully, reveals himself extraly to the new Christian because he needs to show him, I am here. Because we do ask the question, where's God? Is he really with me? Did I... What did I do? What happened? What was that thing that I happened inside of me? Did I really come to know God? Am I, you know, did I fall in the cold? Am I following some? You know, we ask ourselves some questions, and God has to sort of come and wrap his arms around us just to give us that assurance. So what was God doing with the rock? Well, see, God assures us of his presence, how? With wonders, with miracles. I hope you can look back into your early Christian life and just say, yeah, you know, I remember when God did this and God did that. And he did that because he needed to give you peace and assure you that his presence was with you. I, 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 I told a story yesterday in Ondona. I could just tell dozens of them where God just did little things that mattered nothing to anyone except to me. But they were at a time and a moment when I needed them. 
just to, to help me, assure me that I really did know him. I was making these decisions about, I'd only been a Christian three months. I'm making these decisions about going off to university to become a minister. I mean, I, I'm not even sure how I did all that. No one helped me. I didn't have great mentors that kind of worked me along. A few, but my parents certainly didn't help me. They didn't even know the Lord. But um, I remember sitting in um, this rented house that I rented with these other guys, I told you, you know. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I said, Lord, am I doing the right thing? Am I, am I, am I, you know, am I understanding this whole thing about going off to university? I was, I was all signed up and ready to go to engineering school. I, I done paid all my dudes to the university. I was just waiting for September to come around to go to university for engineering. Here I'm sort of changing all the gears and I'm going off to be a minister. I had no idea what I was doing, folks. I didn't grow up in a Protestant church. I was just sort of walking by faith and, and by what other people were telling me. Anyway, so I'm asking God this one night, you know, I, I don't know, God, you know, this is, this is really complicated. Next morning, I get the mail. It was a Saturday morning. I remember that because I went to work a little later. And uh, so the mail had come. Uh, we happened to get a very early one. And there were two letters in the mail. One was a letter of acceptance by the school that I was hoping would accept me. But there was a problem. Mula. I didn't have any. Letter number two, $1,000 from a payout from an insurance claim that I had given out like three years earlier. I had been to the doctor. They did all that. I'd forgotten all about it. I figured they were never going to give me anything for it. Same day, two letters come in. University saying, you're accepted, $1,000 so I could at least start with something. As a new believer, what do you think I say? Wow! God, you're real. You really are there. Would it matter to you? No. You weren't trying to go into university and you didn't need $1,000. But I did. I had no idea where it was going to come from. See, I had my own rock that followed me through my desert experience. And it provided all that I needed. And in the desert, I learned, my God is with me. So, we're not accustomed to the supernatural. So when we come to Christ, he then begins to do supernatural things around us. And it comforts us because it reminds us he really is here. The next one is they had a war against a tribal people called the Amaleks. Now, they, when they meet up with the Amalekites, basically they're sort of kind of gone through their territory, their backyard kind of thing, and the Amalekites have come out to wage war against them. Now, if you remember, God kept them from going the northern route because the Philistines were fierce warriors. The Amalekites, they weren't that fierce. They were like, you know, the Birmingham people, you know. They bark a lot, but that's about it. So God said they can handle the Amalekites, but in order to handle the Amalekites, they have to get together and they have to... So there was a general. There actually was a general, okay? His name was Joshua, and, and, and Moses said to Joshua, okay, gather the people, figure out who's, uh, who are the fighting men, you know, and go out and meet the Amalekites. He says, I'm going to be up there on that mountaintop, and I'm just going to 
you know, be up there praying for you guys and watching what's going on. But God intervenes and then says to Moses something. Uh, let me read it to you. That uh, Exodus 17, verse 11 and 13, I want to read a little bit out of, out of those. So it came about when Moses held his hands up, that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hands down, the Amalekites prevailed. Verse 13. So Joshua overwhelmed the Amalekites and his people with the edge of the sword. You know what that means? They won. But there had to be a thing in order for it to happen. Moses had to keep his hands up. Moses was watching this this battle down below. And God said, you hold up your hands. He said, and as you do so, your people will prevail. The Israelites will prevail. But if you get tired and you let your hands down, they're going to win. So obviously, you're going to want to keep the hands up, right? Now why? Why? Why the hands? Well, I'm not really all together sure. We've got to look into Timothy for that, and we'll do that in a second. But it gets tiring, so you need a little help, right? So Aaron on one side, and, uh, and uh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Her on the other one, held up his hands. Now he's got help. And so they won. So where is that? What lesson is that in the desert for us? The power of prayer, folks. The power of prayer. As a new believer, you begin to learn, ooh, this praying thing works. I pray and God hears me. I pray and, and, he, he, and he makes himself appear. And, and, and you realize as a new believer, it seems like you're not praying for world peace. You're just, you're just trying to work out your life and the things around you. God shows you, yeah, I'm right here, I'm right here. And he invites us to pray, and he calls us to pray. And so Paul in the New Testament reminds us, pray without ceasing. James chapter 5 tells us, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And we learn the principles of a lesson. Prayer. Prayer is important. We learn in 1 Timothy 2 that Paul is actually making reference to this event. Here's what he says. I want men every place to pray. It says, lifting up holy hands. Do you know then what he means? What he's not, what it doesn't mean is you can only pray if you lift your hands up. And if you want to lift your hands up when you're praying, that's fine. The point was what? Stamina. Don't give up. Consistency. Pray. Even, you know, seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. The idea is to be fervent in it. And so we learn a principle in the desert about prayer. One last thing before we close off. In the desert, there was a place they were going to. They weren't just rambling, walking. Where were they going, folks? Sinai, right? That was where they were going. They didn't know why they were going there, but that's where they were going. It took how long to get there? Chapter 19, verse 1 tells us three months. Three months to get down to that Mount Sinai. But they got there. And at Mount Sinai, in the desert, another thing takes place. Very important. Perhaps the most important. The people make a covenant with God. This is where the covenants are made. The covenants are made in the desert. Why? Because we're just starting to walk. 
with God. And we begin to assess our life. We begin to change the priorities, what we thought was important, what really is important according to God. And we start to make some changes and and we begin to organize our life with the purposes of eternity. We make covenants with God. Chapter 19, verses 7 and 8 were not read to us. I'll read them to you because I wanted us to see these together. Then Moses went out to meet his, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, 19, excuse me, 7 and 8. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's a covenant, right? They're agreeing with something, with God, right? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to who? To God. There was a covenant made between God and his people. Chapter 19 begins their stand at Mount Sinai. There God begins to teach them about him. It's no longer about you. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. Uh, My life is a little difficult. You know, it's no longer that self-centered, which is okay in the desert. Adolescence is okay. We're talking about the legitimate part of it. Now God begins to change our minds and says, now I need you to focus on me. And he begins to teach them in Mount Sinai a principle that's not taught by any other Egyptian god at this point. It was a foreign concept. It's called holiness. Begins to teach him about holiness. First thing he tells him is don't touch the mountain. The mountain is holy. I have no idea what that meant, but they... They're just sort of following what he's trying to teach them. And he establishes for them principles of holy living. Tells them that he is holy. He gives them commandments. He gives them rules and regulations for living. He tells them dietetic laws. He then tells them that they need to form a community. And he gives them a reason for the community. He tells them they're going to be building a tabernacle. Tells them before they even built the tabernacle what all the items in the tabernacle were all about. Then he tells him, you're going to collect all the items from yourselves to build this tabernacle. So God begins to teach them a few things. One, what you have isn't yours, it's really mine. I just let you use it. Now I'm asking you to share it. So he teaches them how to give. Then he teaches them collective worship. They cre- they're going to create this tabernacle. And they're, going to, they're going to set up their whole base of camp around the tabernacle. And they're going to learn collective worship. In the desert, you know what you learn? You learn to give to God. You learn the precious value being with brothers and sisters, of going to church. And I, well, I, as, as the new believer, I was the first one in church. I mean, I remember pulling up to the parking lot, my car being like second, third car there. And let me tell you, our church, that church, the parking lot, we get, you know, and I was the last one out. I just wanted to be around Christians. I never met Christians before. I didn't grow up with them. I didn't grow up around them. If they were anywhere near me, I sort of never figured it out. So I was like, these people are awesome. They're nice. I work, I came from a society that wasn't nice. And the girls were nice. Really nice. I'm thinking in the right sense, folks. Now, don't go down the wrong. They were just nice. And the guys were nice. And 
and people were friendly, and, and they accepted me. At that time, I didn't even cut my hair yet. They didn't care. And I didn't have church clothes. And they didn't care. And my car had stickers on them that they wouldn't have their kids put stickers on, those, on their cars. They didn't care. They accepted me because I'd just come out of Egypt. And church was great. And the people of church were great. And I began to learn to give to the cause because I began to believe that God was real. And in Egypt, I made covenants with God. I was telling the folks in Ondon that for the first 10 years of my life, I could count in one hand, one hand, how many times I had not been to church on a Sunday. In 32 years, I can count in two hands how many times I haven't been to church. Folks, I haven't been a pastor all my life. And I do take holidays. Now, when you take a holiday, the point is to take a holiday from what you do. So it would make sense that my holiday would be to not go to church. No, that doesn't make sense. I go to church because of the people of God, because of the word of God. So long before I'm off on holiday, I know, you know, I'm going to the other side of the pond on Wednesday. I, I know where I'm going to be every single Sunday. And no, I'm not preaching in all of them. And I know where I'm going to be in between the week. And no, I'm not going to be preaching all of them. But I'm so looking forward to being with the people of God I haven't seen in a few years. And a bunch of other churches. But see, I had a great pastor. He's still alive. He still is the pastor of my home church. And he taught me as a really new believer in the desert. He said, Raphael, make a commitment now that you're going to be in the house of God to worship with the people of God every week. Don't wait till Sunday morning to decide how you're going to go. You make the decision now for the rest of your life. I understood that. I understood that it was in the desert where I decided when I had nothing that all that I had belonged to God and began to learn the idea of giving to God. But you know what? For about the first eight years of my Christian life, it was I got more than I could ever give because I didn't have anything to give. And as life, my life changed and my position changed and everything changed, the giving didn't stop and his giving certainly didn't stop. And the collectiveness of being with the people of God was decided then. The giving was decided then. My walking with the principles of God was decided then. And I said to God, every time I learn something new, I will incorporate it into my life. It's not, I'll learn something new, and I'll see if I want to incorporate it into my life. So in the desert, you make covenants with God. Because in the desert, God gives you his commandments, gives you his principles, and says to you, if you follow them, you're going to get out of the desert quicker, and you're going to get to Canaan faster. But if you choose not to follow his principles, if you choose not to live in the simple concepts of what he's given to you, you're just going to become a desert rat. You're just going to be in the desert for a long time. 
And you'll, you'll learn to live in the desert. You'll get comfortable in the desert. You'll even get to enjoy the desert. But it's still sub, sub-living in the Christian world. And you'll learn to go to church in the desert, and you'll learn to read your Bible once a week in the desert, and, and you'll learn to, you know, do things in the desert and give in the desert, but you're going to still be in the desert, folks. Because somewhere along the line there were principles you said, well, that's not for me. Or, well, that's just the way I am. I'm not, I don't have to change. You are misunderstanding the reason why you were in the desert. So, there is a legitimate experience in the desert. There's no timetable for it. It's not, you're only supposed to be in the desert for three months or three years. No, no I, don't, I don't, there is no time. But I know this. It's not to be excessive either. You're not supposed to be in the desert for 20 years or even 10 years. Think that there is a desert time, yes, but it's not meant to be forever because you're supposed to constantly always be moving forward in your Christian walk. There is no plateau. There is no neutral ground. You either go forward or you go back. And you continue going around and around and around Mount Sinai. So we conclude this morning by this thought as we get ready for our communion. As we think about the elements of, of his body and, 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 and his blood shed for us. That God was with his people. God is with us. That's what that remembrance is all about. And he taught us. He established us, and he has given us principles for godly living. But he's still a gentleman. He'll teach them, but he won't shove them. He'll show them to you, but he won't make you. He'll just leave you in the desert. There's nothing more hurtful than learning the same lesson over and over and over again because it just doesn't seem to get through. So there is a legitimate desert experience. Enjoy it if you're there. Grow if you're there. If you've been there for a long time, start asking yourself, God, help me get out. There's got to be more than this in my Christian walk. Let's pray as we uh, prepare our hearts for our communion service.